So I'm glad that you're here. Secondly, I'm very excited to see my buddy Hunter is here with us today. He's up there. So what's up, Hunter? Visiting, so glad that you're here. And if you are just joining us today, we are actually at the tail end of a series that we've been calling Beyond Doubt. And this series started at Easter, in which we began to grapple with some of the most serious questions that we as Christ followers, but also as non-believers, bring to the Bible, bring to, um, to God and say, well, I, I, if you are real and you are who you say you are, then why this? And as we began to process through some of our questions, does prayer make a difference? How can I know that uh, the gospel is real? How do I know that Jesus rose from the dead? One of the things we recognized really early on was that uh, we were basing all of our answers off of an assumption that we needed to address. And that assumption was that this document here that we call the Bible was both historically accurate as well as utterly trustworthy for basing our answers upon. And so over the last couple of weeks, this series really took kind of a U-turn from where I anticipated it going because we realized we needed to lean heavily into our understanding of what the Bible is and how to approach it in such a way that we don't simply twist Scripture to support any belief that we have. And so one of the things that we talked about last week, and it was a really important conversation, if you were not here for that, I would encourage you to grab a CD um, out in the foyer. You can go on our website, lighthousecommunity.com, and you can listen to that and any of the other messages that we've done. Uh, But the real focus for that was that in order for us not to simply take a verse and twist it to mean whatever we want it to mean, we must first read that verse in context. And then we explained what that means. There's two types of context that we looked at. There's literary context, and that means that a a word can have many, many meanings, and so you determine a word's meaning based upon the words that are around it and its sentence. And a sentence can be very easily taken out of context if you don't read that sentence within the larger conversation that's happening. And so we said when you're reading a verse, you can't just read a verse all by itself. You need to read it within the context of what's literally around it, the conversation that's happening. And also, you need to read that verse with an understanding of the, uh, the type of literary genre that it is. Because you're going to read poetry differently than you read a letter, differently than you will read a historical account, differently than you will read uh, wisdom literature. For instance, if I were to say an apple a day keeps the doctor away, you're going to know that there's some truth underneath that, that if you eat healthfully, you probably won't need to see the doctor as often. However, you're not going to get angry when you carry around and eat an apple every day, and at one point you have to go see a doctor, because we don't take that, we don't press it in that way. So the first thing we looked at was the literary context. What is the genre? What is the the conversation happening? And are are we reading that verse within the context of the larger conversation? The second type of context that we looked at last week was the historical context. This is God's word. It speaks to us across the millennia. At the same time, however, it is a product of a historical moment. We, We talked about the fact that there were 40 different authors who helped speak into, over the course of 1,500 years, these 66 books of the Bible. And each of those authors was writing in a particular time period to a specific audience under specific circumstances. 
And if we hope to understand what this has to say to us here and now today, we first need to ground it in who was speaking, who were they talking to, what was going on in their context. So that's the historical context. And what it, because we cannot expect that Scripture is going to say something radically different to us than it first said to them. Now, we absolutely have a new perspective, a more full perspective on it. For instance, when Jesus said, hey, listen, guys, in this world you're going to have trouble, but you can take heart because I've overcome the world. I suspect that his disciples had very little clue what he meant when he said he had overcome the world. They probably had a pretty good idea of what he meant when he said, in this world you'll have trouble. We all understand that. But what do you mean you've overcome the world, but 24 hours later, they would see that he had died on a cross. And some 72 hours later, they had seen the resurrected Christ, and suddenly their understanding of that changed. Now we, 2,000 years ago, can look upon the cross and recognize, yes, in this world we encounter brokenness all over the place. But our hope is found in the fact that because of what Jesus did on the cross, even the brokenness of this life doesn't get the last word. We have a new appreciation for it, but what Jesus said does not change. Make sense? So last week I threw um, a baseball diamond analogy up for Frank and other people who actually like baseball. Um, can we throw that up right now? Yes, no, maybe so. Mikey, I know Hunter's Rex. Can you throw the baseball diamond up there for me, please? You no, know, you don't have it? Oh, you got it. Thank you. Okay, so this is the progression of a Bible study. When you are in a life group, when you're doing Bible study on your own, our natural tendency whenever we read a scripture is to ask the question, what does this mean to me? Which is a very valid question. But if that's the first question you ask, that would be like hitting the baseball really well and then running straight to third base. You would be out because you're not running the bases correctly. So the first question we need to ask is what does the text say? What is the actual conversation happening? So what does this mean within its literary context? Who's speaking? Who are they talking to? All that kind of stuff. Once we've grounded it in its context, then we ask the second question. Second base is what did this mean to the original audience? So whoever it was being written to originally, how would they have understood this to speak into their context? Once you've gotten to second base, then it is appropriate for us to ask the third question. Well, what does this mean to me here and now? But we must ground whatever interpretation that we have of Scripture upon what it would have meant to the original audience. Otherwise, it's very easy for us to twist Scripture to support whatever theological perspective we want to, to push forward. And quite honestly, if you look throughout history, you can see a number of ways that the Bible has been used to support some very bad behavior in Jesus's name. Things that I would not stand up here in, for a moment and try to, to uh, protect or say this was right, because people have been reading scripture out of context for generations. Then, once you've gone to third base, what does it say to us today? Then, and only then, do you then apply Scripture to your life and say, okay, Holy Spirit, how should I respond to this? What is my natural response? And this is going to be the most subjective interpretation. Because what does it actually say to us today has a lot to do with what it said to its original audience. But then for each of us, given our particular context, given what's going on in our life, the response that we might have might look very different from somebody else's. And this is where we depend on the Holy Spirit to really go, okay, 
filtering it through my context and what's going on right now. God, what are you telling me in this? That's a brief overview of what we talked about last week. And I gave you a little bit of homework. I said I wanted you to look at a verse that we quote quite often. It's a verse that was written about 2,500 years ago uh, by the prophet Jeremiah. It's a verse that says, Jeremiah 29, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You know this. You've heard this. You've posted this on your social media feeds. You have a mug with this printed on it. And if we simply took it at its face value, who do we feel like this verse is speaking to? Us, right? This is a promise to me. And what do we hear God saying to us through this verse? This is the interactive portion, so go ahead and pull it out. Prosper! I love that word! Amen! I want to prosper. God, you're going to take care of me. That means that my bank account is going to keep growing, not dwindle. That means that regardless of how crazy it looks in the housing market, I might be able to buy here in the next year, God, because you're going to prosper me, not harm me. It means that my body, I may be wasting away right now. The doctor may have given me a pretty negative prognosis, but God's got a plan for me, and he's going to prosper me. So I know that I'm going to get past this, or whatever it happens to be. And there is an entire type of theological interpretation of the gospel that uses this and a few other key passages that are ripped out of their context and used as a promise that God wants nothing more than your comfort and your well-being. And I would suggest that that does a radical disservice to his word, and, and it basically puts some promises out there that quite honestly don't always line up with how the world works. And is it any wonder why people lean into it expecting that God is going to take care of them and when, he, when it doesn't work out the way they anticipate, they get discouraged, disenchanted, and they walk away. So this morning, and I know some of you have already done this, which is great, because you can come to the conversation having already prepared a little bit, but this morning I want us to look at this verse that we know so well within its context, and I want us to run the bases with it. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 29, and that's about right in the middle of your Bible. If you open it up and you hit the Psalms, go right a little bit. If you find yourself in, in say, like Ezekiel or Hosea or Zechariah, go left. Jeremiah was a prophet writing about 2,500 years ago he was in Jerusalem, but at the time, Israel, the, the northern ten tribes of Israel, had been overrun and conquered. And God had warned them that this was going to happen. You see, when they had entered into the promised land, God said, I'm giving you this land. It's, it, it is the land I've promised your forefathers. I'm making good on that promise. It's a land that is flowing with milk and honey, meaning it's got lots of really good, rich resources. I'm going to help you overcome the inhabitants of that land, and you're going to settle into it. You're going to be living in homes you didn't build, eating the, the fruit of uh, you know, gardens that you did not plant. I'm taking care of you. But if you get in the land and you get comfortable and you forget about me, then I am going to remove you from the land. I'm going to let other nations conquer you and take you away from the land because... 
it's going to be a lesson to you that you need to rely on me and not simply on your own abilities and not forget about me. Sure enough, the people of Israel forgot about God and they found themselves in 606 BC, about 600 years before Jesus' birth. They found themselves overrun by the Babylonian nation. King Nebuchadnezzar and his armies began to take the best of the best of the people to Babylon. And you can read about some of them in the book of Daniel. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, guys like that were brought into the Babylonian empire where they were trained up to help kind of be uh, servant leaders within that nation. And others were carted off to captivity. And so now, with that little bit of historical context, let's begin reading in Jeremiah chapter 29. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders amongst the exiles and the priests, the prophets, and all the other people that Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, when we hear the word prophet, let me just pause for a second. When you hear the word prophet, you you're often think, well, this is somebody who tells what's going to happen in the future. And that happens a lot. But more often than not, when you hear the word prophet, think of simply somebody whom God speaks through. They feel compelled to say, this, this is what the Lord is laying on my heart to share with you. And oftentimes it talks more about the, the present circumstances than it does with the future circumstances. So the fact that Jeremiah is speaking to them, he's speaking into their present circumstances. Let's jump down to verse 3. Jeremiah entrusted this letter to Elisha, son of Shaphan and Gemiah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. So he gives the letter to a couple of guys with really awkward names, and they get sent to Babylon. And this is the letter that they, they are given by the prophet Jeremiah to give to the people of Israel that find themselves in exile. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Don't decrease. Also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because as it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Don't listen to the dreams that you have encouraged them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I've banished you, declares the Lord, and bring you back to the place from which I carried you 
into exile. Now, the letter doesn't end here. It's got another 12 or 14 verses. And in that, he then points to the people that are still in Jerusalem, the people that are still in the land that have not been carted away. And he says, hey, listen, don't worry about them. God is working on them, and it's not going to be all that comfortable for them either. And as for those false prophets, the ones that are speaking on my behalf, even though I haven't told them to, and saying things that I have not told them, there's going to be a consequence for that as well. Okay, so that's kind of the, the context into which Jeremiah 29, 11 happens. So now let's run the bases with this really quickly. First base, what is it saying? First off, who's writing? Who's the one speaking here? Is he speaking on behalf of himself? No, so it's Jeremiah speaking on behalf of whom? Who's he speaking to? Jewish exiles living in a land that is not their own, cut off from the promised land. What are the circumstances surrounding his writing? They're in exile. That's not comfortable. A lot of their identity as a Jewish people was derived from their connection to the land. This was the promised land. This is what God promised to give us. He's given it to us. Now all of a sudden they find themselves not there. They're cut off from a, a huge portion of their, the foundation of their identity. And they're spun. And then we hear about these false prophets who are saying things on behalf of God that God has not told them to say. And we're, not, we're never told outright what they're saying, but because of the context of what Jeremiah is saying, we can infer that it sounds like they were probably saying, hey guys, don't worry. God will bring us back to the land very soon. Just wait, because in a matter of weeks or months, God's going to act and we're going to get there. Now, are we sure of that? No, not 100%. But given the context of what Jeremiah says, that would be my guess as to what these false prophets were saying. They were prophesying peace and comfort and just a little bit, and we're going to be back in the land. And into that, Jeremiah, speaking on behalf of God, says, listen, it's not going to happen the way that you're anticipating. Settle down. Build houses. Plant gardens. Have children. Give them away in marriage. Because you're going to be in this land. You're going to be cut off from the promised land and living in exile here for the next 70 years. Do you think that that would have been an encouraging message to hear? Probably not. There's a reason why prophets weren't always the most popular people. Settle down. In fact, pray for the, the peace Work for the peace and the prosperity of the land to which I sent you and the city that you find yourself in. Pray to the Lord for it because as it prospers, you will prosper even. And in the midst of this somewhat discouraging message that he's letting them know, it's going to be 70 years read it with very different eyes. We read it from a very different culture. Not only do we need to understand their culture, we need to understand the culture that we read it from. Otherwise... Every interpretation that we have will be colored by our cultural context. And this particular passage, there's a lot of different kind of filters that we have because we are products of the 21st century American church, because we have grown up here in a land of affluence, because we are relatively comfortable, and we are the most predominantly powerful nation in the planet, at least have been my entire lifetime. And so because of that... We read it 
with these filters on. I'm just going to point out one, and in the coming weeks, we'll, we'll explore a couple of others. We live in a remarkably individualistic society. But the, the people of God, Israel, the ancient Middle Eastern culture, is very different. They do not think of themselves as individuals. They think of themselves as a part of a larger unit, as a, of a community, whether it be their, their identity is wrapped around their family, it's wrapped around the tribe that they belong to, it's wrapped around where they are from and the people group that they have come out of, which is why when you hear people described in the Bible, more often than not, what, you don't hear a last name, you hear who their father was, James and John, son of Zebedee. Or you hear where they were from, right? This person, uh, who is it uh, that was carrying the cross for Jesus? Help me out here. Arthur Blessing? Oh, no, not him. No, I mean, I love you so much. No, who is the guy that carried the cross for Jesus? Who is it? Come on, I wrote it down here. Golly, Arthur Blessing, I love you so much. Um, Joseph of Arimathea, right? So you hear people's names attached to where they were from. Arthur, who is attached to blessing. I love that. Um, even Jesus was identified either by his family of origin. He was known as Jesus, son of Joseph. Or he was known by where he was from. Jesus of, of Nazareth. He was, he, he's that, you know, can anything good come from Nazareth? Jesus, oh, he's the son of that carpenter. That's how he was known by people. And so for them, a person's identity is wrapped up in the community that they are a part of. And everything they read is read communally. Very, very seldom in Scripture when you read you, should you read that as you individually. More often than not, the authors of Scripture are writing to you the collective whole, whether it be the church in Corinth, whether it be the, the disciples together, whether it be the Jews that find themselves in exile. So rather than reading this as you, meaning me individually, we need to think of this more as the Midwestern y'all. All right? Whatever. I don't know. Fine. That's, that's tied up with country and Western music, all that other stuff. Sorry. Sorry. I'll just keep digging. We'll get there eventually. In contrast, think of, us, think of us in the 21st century America. We do not think of ourselves as the product of a family or even as we are a part of a family. We think of ourselves as individuals. And everything militates about, against us being wrapped up with a group of people. We want to be known as our own person. Known for what we have done and what we are going to do, and whatever we have accomplished, whatever you know, alphabet soup we have accumulated in our past, all of those things define us. When you go down your resume, you never once point to who your parents are. You never once really point to where you're from. You simply point to what you've done. And any time that your family or your origin comes up, the culture that you come out of, more often than not, it is used as a foil for how far you've come, right? I came out of this, but look, I rose to be a self-made man or woman. Or we go the other way, man, 
he or she had all of the opportunities. Look where they came from and look at what they've done with it and how far they've fallen. In America, we read things as individuals. When we try to read scripture, we cannot simply read that individualistic impulse into it or we will do damage to God's word and we will we will begin to try to apply promises that are made to a group of people, specifically to ourselves, and in so doing, we'll change the heart of what is being spoken. Does that make sense? So with that in mind, let's now bring Jeremiah 29, 11 into our cultural context. Does this change the way we understand God's promise when he says, for I know the plans I have for you? plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. Does this alter the way we read it? I would hope so. I mean, on one hand, we can't simply grab that as a promise that God spoke 2,500 years ago when he was looking at me and say, this is a promise to Eric Wayman for Eric Wayman and maybe for my family, right? That he is going to take care of me, that he is going to continue to grow my bank account, that he's going to make sure that I'm healthy and that I'm comfortable. If anything, if I do read it as a promise to me, I must read it through the eyes of the cross, because the truth of the matter is, we are part of the body of Christ. We are part of the people of God. And we are part of that because of what Jesus did on the cross. We've been grafted into this big, beautiful, sometimes dysfunctional family that, that, you know, trans, uh, that, that goes through generations and centuries and cultures. It transcends all of those things. And we get to be part of that family. But we can't simply read it as a promise to me specifically in my particular circumstances before we understand it and what it was saying to them there and then. And this was a promise to a people who found themselves pretty overwhelmed, pretty discouraged. And it was a promise that says, hey, get comfortable. Because you, this isn't going to play out the way you anticipate. It's not going to happen as quickly as you thought, and it's not going to happen in the way that you thought. But trust me, it will happen. And what can we learn from, what does this verse say to us in our context? There's a couple of things that I've noticed. First off, it says that God does not give up on his people even when they have not been faithful to him. The Israelites hadn't been faithful to him. They turned their back. They'd begun to worship the gods of the, the, the foreign nations around them. They'd begun to uh, worship idols. And so there was a consequence to their choices. But even in the midst of that, God says, hey, I haven't given up on you. I haven't forgotten you. I'm not done with you yet. Secondly, we see, we learn that God is faithful. Because if you do a little bit of study, we'll find that in 536 B.C., exactly 70 years after the people of God were overrun and were taken into captivity, in 536 B.C., King Cyrus, a Persian king, gives permission to his cupbearer, a guy named Nehemiah, 
and a remnant of people from Israel to begin a long trek back to Jerusalem where they then begin to rebuild the walls and others would soon follow and they would rebuild the temple and others would begin to flow from these nations where they had been taken into captivity. The people would begin to return back to the land that God had promised them beginning exactly 70 years after they had been removed from the land. So that When Jesus was born some 500 years later, he would not be born in captivity in some foreign land. He would be born in the promised land. And when he went to worship, he would not worship in a field of rubble that used to be the temple. He would be able to worship in a brand new temple that had been built upon the same site that the original temple had been built in Jerusalem. God was faithful to his people. It may have taken longer than they hoped, but he was faithful. And so we can then look to the promises that he has given to us as his people and recognize he will be faithful to us as well. Well, what sort of promises are we talking about? There's a ton of them. And they are given to the people of God. Let me point you to one. Turn with me to the very back of your Bible, to Revelation. It's a place that sometimes we avoid like the plague. Because quite honestly, we, we don't understand it within the context that it was intended. Somehow I cut myself here. Um, remember how I was saying that you need to read things within their literary context? Revelation is the only example that we have of apocalyptic literature, which uses a ton of imagery and symbolism. So for us to try to press that and read it literally, We would have to then declare that Jesus has a double-edged sword in his mouth, which would be awkward and hard. And I would be like, all right, Jesus, don't greet me with that holy kiss. That would hurt. But as we get to the end of Revelation, the Apostle John has this vision as he is exiled on the island of Patmos. It's a vision from God of how things are going to play out. And he writes his vision down to the people of God that are scattered once again once again find themselves in a very similar predicament that the people of Israel found themselves uh, in Jeremiah's day. And he declares to them, hey, here's what's coming. I know things seem dire. I know that this, the, 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 the Caesar that sits on the throne calls himself God that holds the, the heavens in his hands. But I want you to know, this is the vision that I have of what's coming. Verse one of Revelation chapter 21. Then I, this is John speaking, saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now that doesn't mean that there's no ocean. You, you know, surfers, body surfers, don't, don't worry. Within Revelation and within Jewish literature, the sea was often the place where evil came out of. And so he's saying those places where evil will necessarily come out, those have been done away with. I really hope there's body surfing still. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a beautiful bride dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more pain, I'm sorry, no more death 
for mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. This is a vision of what is coming. A time when death no longer gets the last word. A time when the pain and brokenness of this world and and the effects, the ravages of sin that we all experience on a daily basis will no longer hold sway. A time when we will get to be face to face with our Father, our Creator, get to do life with Him and work alongside of Him. And thankfully, it's not all going to be just playing harps on clouds. That's not what this is about, but that's another conversation for another day. But, in the same way that the Israelites found themselves living in a a land that was not their own, amongst a people who did not worship their God, we find ourselves in a very similar situation, don't we? We find ourselves surrounded by people who do not call Jesus Christ their Lord and their Savior, who do not live according to the same uh, moral compunction that we do. And we watch as, I think of Connie, who said goodbye to her mother yesterday. Or or Tony, who's dealing with lung issues right now, and just every breath is laborious. I think of the brokenness of this world as, it ex- as we experience it right now, and I go, that's coming, but it's not here yet. And so come, Jesus, you know, come quickly. And that is a promise for us, but it may not necessarily happen within our lifetime. Because think about this for a moment. Remember when I was saying that for the people of Israel, they heard things communally. Meaning a promise could be for them, but they may not actually get to experience it in their own lifetime. Think about the people who Jeremiah was writing to. Settle down. Get comfortable. Seventy years before you're going to come back to the land, but you will come back to the land. Because I have a plan for you. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. That promise was very much for them, even though the vast majority, I would say probably all of them, would be dead before those 70 years were up and the people began to come back. But that promise was still for them. And this promise is for us, even if we don't experience this in our lifetime. Could Jesus come back tonight? You better believe it. And we are called to live as if he could come back at any moment. I know, Michael, I'm looking forward to it too. But it may not happen until our children's lifetime or even beyond that. But do not lose heart. Do not give up. Do not flag in your hope or in your faithfulness. Because our Father God is faithful. He doesn't give up on us even when we turn our back on Him. And He doesn't forget about us. And He has already shown Himself to be trustworthy time and again. Are you seeing how this still speaks to us today, even though we are not necessarily the ones who are being spoken to specifically? Does that make sense? So that's third base. And obviously we've gone way deeper in this conversation than you would probably do if you were just reading it. But this now brings us 
to fourth base. And what is this? God, what are you saying to me? How do I respond to this? And this is where it gets very, um, again, as I said, subjective. Our answer is going to look different depending on our circumstances, whether you're like Kelly, who, you know, is in high school right now playing baseball, what is, what is his response going to be that might be very different from Mandy, who's raising her kids with her husband in Santa Ana and just going, okay, God, what do you have for me? How do I love my city? And I can't speak for you, but I will say that a couple months ago, God spoke directly to me in this section of scripture. I, I happened to be up in Sacramento. Um, I'd gone with a couple of other pastors from Costa Mesa. We, we joined together with a whole bunch of pastors up there from California, basically as a way to just go, what is going on in this state of ours? How are decisions being made? Who are the people who are making those decisions? And how can we begin to interact with them as people uh, of the church, rather than simply relinquishing any sort of influence that we might have and say, we don't get political. And quite honestly, that is my intentionality. As I've, been, I've said for a long time, I don't get political. And so we kind of just stepped away from this thing. And I, and I realized, you know what, I need to step into it a bit. And I need to at least know what's going on. So I found myself up in Sacramento. And it was the second morning we were there, I was, I, I was rooming with another pastor from Costa Mesa, and one of the things I learned while I was up there is that this particular pastor snores robustly. Yeah. So it was about 5.30 a.m. when I finally kind of gave up the pretense of ever sleeping again. Um, and I got up, and I, and I went downstairs, and I took my backpack, I had my um, my journal, I had my Bible on my phone and some other things. And I, I went down and I just was sitting in the lobby to do some quieter time. Um, and as I'm sitting there, one of the things I have is the Bible app on my phone. And, and one of the things it does every morning is it throws a verse of the day to me. And if I like the verse, it gives me the ability to just kind of send it out on my social media with a really cool image. And, you know, I can look like I'm really holy and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Completely out of context, but whatever, you know. So anyway, the verse that day was Jeremiah 29, 11. But rather than just simply going, amen, God, I'll take that blessing, I decided to run the bases. So I, I clicked on the app, and I went to that passage, and I began to read the entirety of Jeremiah 29 to kind of get the idea of the literary context as well as, and the, the thing I love about Jeremiah 29 is you get the historical context built right in. It basically explains what's going on right there. Very helpful. And as I read it, I began to get a lot of the, the flavor of what we've been learning this morning. This is not spoken directly to me. This is spoken to a people in very different circumstances. And as I read it, one of the verses that jumped off the page at me was a different verse in Jeremiah 29, 11. And if you've ever experienced this, when I read scripture, there are times where it almost feels like one of the verses will jump off the page and say, pay attention to me. Anybody else experience that? Where you're just like, this, it feels as if God is saying, hey, don't miss this point. And so I just sat with it. And that particular verse that, that jumped off the page that morning was Jeremiah 29, verse 7. It, it's like this in the NIV. Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. 
Now, I didn't want to just take the NIV's word for it, because, and this is something we haven't touched on, but I need to say it for just really quickly. Our beginning point for studying and interpreting God's word, namely reading scripture, is actually the end point of a ton of study and interpretation. Every time you read a translation of the Bible, you are reading hundreds of scholars' best understanding of how to take words that were written in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic and translate it across a culture that has a radically different language and get the heart of it. And some Bibles take different approaches. There are some Bibles, like the NRSV, the NASB, the King James Version, the New King James Version, that try to stay as close to the original language as possible. There are other translations that say, we don't want to sound like Yoda when we're, we're writing. We want people to be able to read this as they would understand it. So we're going to kind of unmoor ourselves from the original kind of sentence structure, and instead we're just going to go for the heart of what this is saying. So the message is by far kind of the most loosely paraphrased, but you have others like the NLT, the CEV, and some other translations that are over here just saying, hey, we want to get the heart of it. And then in the middle are translations, like the NIV would probably be the most um, obvious and most popular, that are trying to straddle both of those things. We call it a dynamic translation. It is as, it's close to the original language, but in such a way that people can understand it the way we regularly talk, which is why we have chosen as a church to teach out of the NIV predominantly. But I will tell you that when I'm studying scripture, I don't rely on the NIV because then I am, without knowing who those people who were doing the translating, I'm relying upon their interpretation. And in order to kind of triangulate and get as close to the original language as possible, I like to study lots of different translations, all the way from like the NASB, all the way, sometimes I'll do the message, but I, I like to just kind of play in here. And so that morning, I read three or four different translations of the same passage. And the one that grabbed a hold of me, and I just went, man, this is speaking to me powerfully, was the New Living Translation's take on verse 7. Can we throw that up here for just a moment? Yes, no, maybe so. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 7. You don't have it? Okay, then I'll just read it. This is how the NLT puts it. Work for the peace and the prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare, because I love the way that it kind of stepped away from that word, as it prospers, you will prosper, because that still has prosperity gospel language to it. So I love that it's basically saying, hey, as the city in which you find yourself in exile goes, so you go. Its welfare determines your welfare. And in that moment, I felt as if God was saying, hey, you're in a state and in a country that is not your ultimate home. You're a member of my kingdom. And one day you will be with me in my home. But in the meantime, this is where I've planted you. And so I want you to work for the peace and the prosperity of the land to which I've sent you. And I want you to pray for its welfare because its welfare will determine your welfare and your family's welfare and your church's welfare. And so I felt very compelled that morning to get up and walk out, and it was still dark out, the sun hadn't risen, and right across the street from the hotel I was staying at was the state capitol and the state capitol plaza, and so I walked across the street, and for the next hour or so, I just began to walk laps around the state capitol building, 
I contemplated doing seven laps to see if it would fall down and um, <laughs> realized that probably was not what God meant and intended for me that morning. So I just start walking around and I started praying for my state. I started praying for the men and women who have devoted years of their lives, separating themselves from their families for long stretches of time to go and be there and to help speak into the direction of our state. Not all of them I would have voted for. Not all of them are, are pushing for values that I would like to see pushed for. But they are there, and I felt compelled by God to pray for them. Felt compelled by God to pray for God's blessing and direction to be upon our state. And that God would use them and use our state to advance his kingdom purposes, whatever they look like. And so I felt compelled to pray for the welfare of my state and of my city. Um, that is how God's word that was written 2,500 years ago to a people that found themselves in exile in a land that was not their own. That's how God's word continues to speak to us today. Because, as the writer of Hebrews put it, all word is God-breathed, and it is living and active. Because the same spirit that inspired the writing of God's word continues to inspire the reading of it. And that morning, God's word was very clearly compelling me to pray for people that I don't often think to pray for. God's word is for us. But it cannot mean something different to us today than it meant to the original audience. And so we need to be good stewards of our interpretation of scripture. Otherwise, we may fall into the same traps that men and women have done throughout the centuries of taking verses out of their context, twisting them, and then reinserting them into our lives to support whatever decisions we've already made. Basically demanding that Scripture submit to us when in reality we need to submit to Scripture because that Scripture points us to the true, living Word of God, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh the word of God through whom the world was spoken and continues to hold its existence together. He is our Lord and Savior, and this word of God points to that word of God, and he is the one who saves our lives. This is trustworthy, and it is utterly trustworthy to point us into relationship with him so that he can continue to guide us here and now. Does that make sense? That's a really helpful distinction. This is the word of God, little w. He, Jesus Christ, is the word of God, big W. So, word of God, Jesus, I thank you so much for loving us. I thank you, Father God, for taking the time to speak into our reality and to, to give us a wealth of of insight into who you are and how you operate and your heart so that we can be shaped by you, so that you can begin to use this word not um, as a cudgel that we get to beat people into submission, but rather as, as sandpaper that begins to shape our hearts to be a better reflection of your heart so that we will be known as those who love just as you have loved us, so that we will be known as people who are holy as our Lord God is holy. We want to be made in your image. More and more, we want to be remade in your image. And we want to represent you well, not so that people will be attracted to us, but so that people will be drawn to you 
and glorify you on the day that you come back and you make all things new. So, Father, we just come into a time now where we want to respond to you. In a few moments, we're going to take an offering, and and part of that offering may be that you simply want to bring your prayer requests to God. But you also may want to find, um, if you want somebody to pray with you, um, Tom, if you'll be down here, and I'll be over on this side with my wife. If you want prayer, we're available. But right now, let's just go ahead and respond to our Father, God, who loves us so much that he does not give up on us. And he does have a plan for his body, his people. And I'm so grateful that we get to be part of his people. Let's worship.